We are starting off our Advent series this morning. We're going to be looking at the kings of Christmas. In Matthew chapter 2, there's actually a few different kings that we're introduced to. And this morning, we're going to start off with the three wise kings, the three wise men, the magi who are from the east. Um, And we're going to be going throughout this entire uh, chapter in chapter 2 and looking at a a few different kings that we see in this Christmas uh, narrative of Christ's birth and narrative account. Um, But after that, we're going to be wrapping up the series on Christmas Eve. As Pastor Scott mentioned at the top of the hour, really truly want to just drive home that this is a missional opportunity. For so many of us, Christmas is all about receiving. And the way I want to kind of talk about that is I actually want us to actually be giving the gift of Jesus to those who need to receive Jesus around us. So on Christmas Eve, we're actually going to be having two services, the 4 and the 530. This is going to be a candlelight service. There will be an altar call. We will be expecting you to bring people who you know don't know Jesus. And we want to talk about Jesus being the true king of Christmas. So we would just want to encourage those of you who know Jesus as king uh, to come back and to bring those who you know don't know Jesus as king. We want to talk to them about him. So we just want to make that really clear. The following week on on New Year's Eve, uh, we're going to be starting off a new series on the Song of Solomon. So that's going to be fun. We've had a lot of marriages in the last few years. Um, And so this is an instruction book. Uh, God didn't just give us intimacy and marriage and sexuality as a gift uh, for us to just kind of figure out on our own. He gave us a guide to how we're supposed to interact and pursue one another in both courtship and ongoing relationship within marriage. So we're excited to start off the new year in January through the, through the beginning months and the winter months. Um, while it might be cold outside, it's going to get hot in here. So just put it that way. It's terrible. I'm going to get emails. It's all good. <laughs> Um, when you were younger, uh, I don't know if there was someone who you really looked up to, uh, that you really respected, uh, but mine was one of my older cousins, and he lived uh, not too far from us as I was growing up in the Kirkland, Washington area. It's kind of a weird flex, but Kirkland, the home of Costco, I also grew up there, so yeah, I don't know what that means, but... Uh, He lived about eight minutes away, and whatever my cousin did, I wanted to do. Uh, Whatever he wore, I wanted to wear. Whatever he got, I wanted to get. I just loved this dude. I respected him so much. I wanted to be just like him. Uh, And so everything that we did, we kind of did together as families, and I just so admired and looked up to him. If he got a new bike, I wanted a new bike. And if he got pegs, uh, I wanted pegs. Do you guys remember pegs on a bike when you are growing up? They're awesome, right? Screw them in. There's like the cool kids on the block. That was my cousin. Uh, But there was one thing that he did that I probably shouldn't have followed him in. You see, he decided it was going to be really fun to take one of these chariot burlies that you put on the back of your bike and that he was going to take an old broomstick and he was going to put that broomstick inside of a roller skate and he's going to duct tape that roller skate to the front of the burly, the little chariot. And then he was going to have me get inside of it and go down Cherry Hill. Cherry Hill was the hill of death in his neighborhood. And uh, you couldn't slow down, you couldn't stop, didn't matter what kind of, uh, of, of, whether it was a bike or a skateboard, didn't matter what you were on, you just couldn't stop. And so he thought it'd be a really great idea if his little cousin Oni got in this thing and zoomed down Cherry Hill. Uh, but I told him, because I respected him, you have to go with me. Um, and it was a harrowing endeavor, and it didn't end very well, uh, but man, it's a great story to tell now. We ended up zooming down so fast, people were trying to stop us before we got on, but we're both knuckleheads, and we just wanted to go for it. We were both screaming at the top of our lungs as we descended this murderous hill, and when we got to the bottom, the, the broom snapped, and we both went bailing out, and it's a story to tell, that's for sure. Uh, but the thing is, everything else that he did, I wanted to do. I wanted to be just like him in everything. And this morning, we're going to encounter these three wise men, or these three wine king, wise kings, not wine kings. Oh my goodness. Jeez, talking about Song of Solomon, talking about wine kings? What kind of a church is this? Yeah, I'm just going to close in prayer. Greg, come bail me out, dude. Come bail me out. We're going to look at the three wise kings who are coming from the east, and they're going to give us an example to emulate this morning. They're going to, they're going to seek after the king of the Jews in a way that should challenge our hearts and actually call us up to the way that they saw it. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning. And over the rest of the weeks, we're going to be encountering uh, not only these wise kings, we're going to see a wicked king, we're going to see the worshiped king, and then there's going to be kind of a mystery king as we wrap this series up on Christmas Eve morning. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you found your place there, I'm going to invite you to stand alongside of me 
as I read God's word for us this morning. Um, if you don't have a physical copy of the Bible and you want one, there should be one under a seat in front of you, and you can just take that with you. Uh, but Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, here's what Matthew writes to us this morning. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's worded. You may be seated. Let's pray before we jump in to unpack this passage together. Father, we come before you. We're thankful, Lord, for your word. Father, you and I both know that I sin and fall short of your glory often, and yet Jesus I thank you that you are my righteousness. You are who I claim and cling to. You are the anchor of my faith and the hope of all, Lord, who would follow you. And Jesus, I pray that you would truly exalt yourself among us this morning, that we would see that you are king, that is meant to be sought, that is meant to be worshiped. And Jesus, I just pray this morning that by the power of your spirit, you would allow me, Lord, to speak clearly and truthfully in accordance with your word for the accomplishment of your will, for the expansion of your great kingdom and the encouragement of this people. We pray this all in Jesus' mighty name, and all God's people said. So this morning, we're going to look at five ways of living like the, the wise men. How is it that we should emulate, or how should they be for us a guide or an example in godliness, in faith? What is it that we can learn from them? Well, before we jump into that, I just want to kind of do a little bit of like, you know, frequently asked questions about these guys. The Magi are kind of a mysterious group in the Bible, and yet Church tradition gives us a little bit that we can kind of cling to and grasp in order to give us color. So we're going to ask some questions about these guys before looking at the five ways to live like them. So we're going to ask, first of all, when was this? The Bible here tells us, look with me at verse 1. It says that this was after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This was after Jesus was born. So I think for some of us, we have in our minds that somehow... Uh, a lot of nativity scenes, that the wise men were actually at the birth of Christ. So this was actually a couple of years after Jesus was born. We see this in that the passage actually refers to Jesus not as an infant, but it uses a specific word, child. This would have been a toddler. So it, he's probably two years old, and they, they would have come, but they came when his star arose. That's when they began their search and their journey, okay? But here's the thing. I think the reason why we have it in our minds that the Magi were present at the nativity scene is because of pictures like this. Right? So, just to let you know, you got three characters that immediately need to come down from your nativity sets at home, all right? Um, I actually found another depiction that was far more biblical that I wanted to show you guys this morning. <laughs> uh, notice, um, not just the grass skirts, um, but also no wise men. So, this is biblically uh, far more accurate than what you guys have on your, on your counters. Um, for those of you who are new, I'm Hawaiian. That's why everyone is laughing, right? Just as a kind of like insider. Um, Jesus is going to judge me for that. Uh, but here's the thing. I think that some of us uh, have an idea of Christmas time and Christmas in our minds that the Bible doesn't actually construct for us. So I want us as, as a truth-rooted people to have the Word of God inform us today. So what do we know uh, about these guys? Uh, what were they? Well, the text tells us that there were wise men. In some translations, you'll have the word magi. These wise men were magi from the east. So what is a magi? 
Well, church history and tradition can inform us, but it's not intended to instruct us. And so just as kind of an aside, before I give you the following information, I just want us to note that church history and church tradition that's handed down to us is, is, is not meant as the Catholic Church or, or the Orthodox Church presents it. It is not equal or on par with the Bible. The Bible stands alone as the infallible Word of God. No other word can be infallible. Not the Pope, not any other bishop, not a pastor. The Bible alone is the infallible Word of God. Okay? So that's, that's settled. However, church history can inform us of some things that aren't essential to salvation. It can fill in some of the gaps and color some of the history that surrounds some of these, uh, these people, like this in the Bible. So here's what we've got to know about church tradition. Church history and tradition. It's a notification, not a publication. It's a note. It's not a law. It's a post. It's not a policy. If somebody asks you whether, you're not, whether or not you're willing to die for church tradition, it's an immediate no, not willing to die for that. But if somebody asks you to die, uh, if, if they're going to change the scriptures, that's an immediate for us. Yes, we, I would rather take capital punishment than altered truth. The Bible is the infallible word of God on which we stand. It guides us in life and faith and living. That's why we stand again, okay? So just want to reiterate that. But here's what we do know, that there are some church historians and early church fathers who lived within the first hundred and just after years of Jesus's resurrection, that they would have had a direct line to understand a little bit more about some of these traditions that aren't essential to our salvation today, but certainly give us color and understanding about who these guys were. So first of all, Tertullian tells us that these guys were so influential, so powerful, that they were basically kings. He says, well, nigh kings. The term, though, magi, actually comes from a Persian word. It's a Latin word that became a Greek word, and it essentially means a sorcerer or a magician. Now, we're not thinking like three-card Monty, all right? That's not the kind of magic that they're talking about. In this particular time, it's less David Blaine, and it's more of a scientist. Somebody was an astrologer who studied the stars, who looked at the heavens, and understood what God's creation was all about. So we, un we know and understand that magi were those who were essentially ancient scientists who would study the heavens. Now, unfortunately, most of the astrologers during this time would actually bow down and worship the, the sun, the moon, and the stars as gods in and of themselves. However, these magi were wise enough to actually discern and understand something beyond that the heavens were pointing to. Some of you who have understanding of of the biblical background might know of a guy named Daniel. Dan, Daniel in the lion's den? Any, by a show of hands, Daniel in the lion's den. All right, heavily churched this morning. Okay, so Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If we remember correctly, these gentlemen were actually ripped up out of the land of Israel and taken to Babylon. And they actually served in the court of the kings along with the Magi. They would have been a part of this royal council. They would have been advisors and counselors to the king. And at this time, uh, these were gentlemen who were coming from that region of the world, essentially Babylon. Now, we know that these magi would have looked at the stars and the moon and the skies, and they would have understood them to imply that there was something greater happening beyond what they were seeing in the heavens at the time. So magi we got to get out of our minds that they were magicians and get into our minds that they were ancient scientists who were reading the stars and trying to understand what it meant. Tertullian refers to them as those who were like kings. These kings of the east were looking for the king of the Jews. Who were they? We also learn from some of the early church fathers that give us insight, one of which was Origen. Origen wrote about these three men, and he wrote that their names were Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar. Melchior was known as an old man who had white hair and a long beard, and he gave gold. He was, Origen considered him to be the king of Persia. Caspar was a young, beardless, ruddy complexion giving, who gave incense, and he was the king of India. Balthazar was black-skinned, heavily bearded, and gave myrrh. He was the king of Arabia. Now, here's what we need to have in our minds. Whether or not this is true, what is true in Scripture is that there is at least a sense in which we know that there probably were three wise men who were coming from the east. We're told that there were many of them, even though we're not told that there were three. The reason why we think that there were three and why Origen is probably right is because they, once again, gave three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We're going to talk a little bit later about some of these gifts that they gave and what it implies, but here's what I want us to understand. They were looking to the heavens, and they began to sought, seek out Jesus. 
And this is where, as we learn from, from their example, that we should emulate what they do. And here's the first way that they show us how we could actually pursue Christ in our own lives. First of all, be curious about creation. Way number one, to be wise, to be like the wise men and to emulate their example is to be curious about creation. Look at verse two with me. The wise men go to King Herod and they ask him this question. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The question is, how did they know that there was a new star? And second of all, how did they know that it was his star? And how did they know that it referred to the king of the Jews? See, these, these men were astrologers, these ancient scientists who looked out into the heavens and saw the handiwork of what they perceived to be something beyond this creation, and they rightly concluded that there was something greater than themselves. This is one of the major problems that we have in our society today, that we only see as materialists what exists right in front of us and ask no greater questions of whether or not there's something beyond us. They saw his star. See, as Christians, as those who believe in a God, it isn't arrogant of us to believe that there is a God. It's actually arrogant to believe that all of this came from nothing and that we are smart enough in and of our own selves to ascertain that there's nothing beyond us. That's arrogance. How, how can I tell you that? Psalm 14.1 says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's foolishness to look at the world today and to not wonder whether or not there's something beyond yourself. That's foolishness and it's arrogance. And yet that is at the heart of atheism and it's also at the heart of secular humanism. Secular humanism puts man on the position of being the, the arbiter and determiner of truth. And yet there's nothing that could be further from the, from the truth. The Bible says, you're foolish if you think that there's no God. But if we have a genuine curiosity about the world, and we are even slightly like these magi, we would wonder about the stars and how they got there. You see, the magi saw a new star. They said, we see something in the heavens that hasn't existed before. There's something new happening. And it was their curiosity about this new phenomena in creation, their wonder at the world that God had created that led them on a hunt, and it led them on a journey. Psalm 19.1 tells us this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I want you to know if you're here this morning and you've ever had the slightest inclination of whether or not there was a creator, there is. There is a creator. He not only created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in it, but he created you. He created you to be in right relationship with him. He created you for his glory. He created you to worship him. And yet the Bible tells us in Romans 1 that in our sinfulness, in our unrighteousness, we have suppressed that truth in our hearts. And instead of worshiping him as our creator and our God, we actually worship our creation. We worship creation as if it is God. You think about materialism and how during this season we worship, we look at ads, we, we devote ourselves to making lists and we purchase and we buy and we purchase and we buy, hoping that something will bring pleasure and joy in some way that will have meaning in our lives. This is the culture that we live in. And yet the wise men, the magi, were wise in that they did not think that creation was an end in and of itself. They knew that there was something beyond that. And this new star led them in curiosity to find something beyond it. What I'm describing right now, theologians actually have a term for it. It's called general revelation. What is that? As I mentioned in Romans 1, it says that God has actually revealed himself in creation. His invisible attributes and her, his power are actually seen throughout creation. So the idea would be that you look at a majestic mountain and you think not, wow, that's majestic, and a mountain, I'm not sure if you've seen one lately as West Michiganders, had to get that in there. But if you look at the majestic mountain, you would, you would think to yourself, how did that get there? What made that? If you would look at the might of a rushing river or the tide that comes in on an ocean, you would see the power of a flood and rushing waters and think, how can something be that powerful? 
that curiosity and that wonder should lead you beyond yourself. This is what happened to Dr. Seigart. Dr. Seigart is actually currently a professor of biochemistry at NYU, New York University. I listened to an interview recently of him talking about his investigation of a single-celled organism. And he said, what led me to conclude that there was intelligence beyond what I could see under a microscope is the fact that there is never, not once, an ability for a single-celled organism to replicate itself without intelligent design without something being able to influence its DNA and its coding that would make it self-replicate. He said, living organisms are the only chemistry in all of our creation that actually have the ability to self-replicate within 99.9% accuracy. He said, when I continued to do my study and my research on all of these single-celled organisms and how these single-celled organisms can replicate over and over and over, I came to wonder about what I had heard and what I had known growing up. It was his investigation about the world that God had created that led him to wonder about whether or not there was a God behind the world that he studied. Dr. Sai goes on, Dr. Gart actually goes on to talk about how this investigation led him to the realization that not only was there a God, but there is a God, and his son's name is Jesus, and he came to die for us. See, Dr. Gart rightly concluded this because he found himself studying the Scriptures, There's not only general revelation, but theologians and scholars have come up with this term. It's special revelation. General revelation in the world exists in order that we would have a curiosity and a wonder about the world in order that it would push us to look for answers. The answers are in the scriptures, and that is special revelation. Special revelation is that unique self-disclosure of God towards man, which came in the form of the scriptures and most poignantly came in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who came in the flesh, was the fullness of God, dwelt in humanity. And that is mentioned here as the child. Amazing, too. How could the heavens resist the formation of a brand new star when their very own creator entered into the creation? How could they resist? Of course, there was a new star. The king of the heavens, who declared with a word and who spoke and created all things, now steps into time, space, and matter. It's no wonder a new star formed. The heavens could not help but glow with a new light that would guide people to the light of the world. You see, special revelation is what, it, what actually allowed these magi to not only look with curiosity at, the, at creation and wonder about the world, but it drew them in to ask greater questions. What does this star mean? And this is the second way that we can actually emulate those magi, is to seek the truth in scriptures. We aren't told exactly what led them to the star, but we are simply told that they had seen his star and rose, when it rose and came to see it. Something helpful to note about kings in the ancient world is that culturally it was expected to honor another king if you were a king. It's very likely that the king of Persia, known in Daniel's time as the king of kings, was flexing a little bit to make sure that the king of the Jews knew who was really king around this area. He was trying to pay tribute, trying to show respect. Even against the Roman imperial powers that existed around Judea at this time, this king wanted to make his name known. That very well could be the case. And yet, these kings that came from the east, it's curious that they knew that it was his star, that they were looking for the king of the Jews. What would have led them to understand this? As I mentioned previously, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego had lived in Babylon and had no doubt taken the scrolls of the, of the Old Testament along with them. And it's very likely that Daniel would have been considered one of the greatest magi, one of the greatest counselors, one of the greatest scholars who he himself was an advisor to the, prince of, to the king of Persia. It was very likely that he would have been honored and venerated and respected and his wisdom would have been sought after. It's very likely that the scrolls of the Old Testament would have existed and that these magi themselves would have seen the star, would have known something of this star that was to appear and would have went and sought after the scriptures themselves. Here's some of the scriptures that speak about this star. Numbers 24, 17 says this, A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall arise out of Israel. If they would have found this text, they would have come to a place of special revelation. They would have been curious about creation, looked in the word of God, and seen there is a guide here. There's supposed to be a new star that appears. 
And it's supposed to come out of Jacob or out of Israel. But with more specificity, they were looking to see where specifically he was to come. And so this is why they needed a little bit of insight. They needed to understand exactly where it was. And so they sought out and they found Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. So the Magi would have themselves known and understood that there was a star that was supposed to come, and that star was not just supposed to come from anywhere. It was supposed to come from Bethlehem. Don't you think it's odd that in the storyline that we just read, when the Magi from the east, who are non-Jews themselves, get to the court where it's filled with Jews, and a king who's ruling over the Jews, isn't it interesting and isn't it odd that they actually ask the Magi, where is this king supposed to come from? And the Magi who were non-Jews, had sought the scriptures, and they found exactly where he was supposed to come from. They said, Bethlehem. What's fascinating is that in the Old Testament, we not only have, we not only have in Numbers the prophecy of a star coming out, and we not only have in Micah that the star would arise and come out of Bethlehem, but we actually have a prophecy in the book of Isaiah that points to these very magi, understanding, discerning these things, and they themselves going and worshiping Jesus, the child. In Isaiah 6, 60, verse 1, it says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Isaiah is prophesying about what it is that we're reading, that kings from afar would come. How do I know this even more specifically? Well, Isaiah continues on. Just a few verses later, he picks up and he says, A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news the praises of the Lord. Do you see? It's not only prophesied that there would be a star, but it's prophesied that these wise men, these wise kings, would know, discern, and understand from the scriptures where that star was supposed to come from. If you're here this morning and you've ever had a question about creation, if you've ever been curious about the big questions of life, who am I? Where do I come from? Why am I here? If you've ever wondered about these things, the answers are found in the Word of God. And the Bible tells us that wisdom cries aloud in the streets. She cries out for any who would listen. There are those who wonder about creation. And then there are those who seek out the truth. The Magi were those who not only wondered about creation and, and were curious about creation, but they sought the truth to the Scriptures. I don't know about you, but I don't like escape rooms. If you've ever been to an escape room, you may have enjoyed it. The pastors convinced me a few months ago to go to an escape room. They had a great time. And I was there. As someone who's mildly claustrophobic, the idea of getting in a room with other men who may or may not be questionable on their hygiene, <laughs> while they sweat and fret, over all these little details. I'm not a details guy. And try and figure out clues and all this sort of stuff. Now, here's the thing. We ended up having a great time. And they're a lot smarter than I am. But as we went from room to room, there was something within each of us that wanted to figure out how to get out. We wanted to find the answers in order to get out. And here's what I'm telling you. God has wired your heart for eternity. The questions, the big questions that you ask about life, that you try and push back through the superficial terms of life, those are the questions that God has put on your heart so you would find him. You would find him. If any of you are here this morning and you've ever wondered about the world or been curious about creation, God has pricked your heart in those specific ways to lead you to him. He wants you to find him. The wise men give us an example in how they came to discern. We are to be curious about creation. A way to look 
a way to be like these wise men is also seeking the truth in the scriptures. It's all here for you. And the third way of living like the wise men is to keep seeking. Don't give up. Look at verse 2. Again, it says that the wise men came from the east. It says that when his star arose, that's when they came. We saw his star when it arose and have come. So here, here's what I want us to, to just think about for a second. I think sometimes, again, the timeline of how this all happened can get truncated so much that we end up putting these wise men in the nativity scene. But that's not how it happened. Christ Jesus was born, right? The angels appear to the shepherds on the night he was born. Jesus is is birthed in, in less than a sentence in all of creation. Our entire redemptive history changed. It's barely even mentioned in these accounts, but what is mentioned is that something happened in the heavens and something happened in Bethlehem, something that changed the world. And when that occurred, there was a star that appeared. And these astrologers, these wise men, these kings from the east, they saw it. They saw something new in the heavens and they began to search the scriptures. It would have taken them time to discern what, what, whose star this was and where he was supposed to be from. But here's what they had to do. They didn't give up on searching the scriptures and they didn't give up on searching for Jesus. Notice, they left and got to him when he was around two years old. Here's what I want us to know. If these wise men were from the same area around Babylon, this would have been 900 miles east. This would have been a five-month journey if you had just the three of them. But likely they had a caravan and likely it took much longer. Could you imagine... Imagine for a second, just having a simple question that Google couldn't answer, right? And you took, it took six months to find the answer. Would you seek for the truth of the scriptures? Would you seek for the truth, the big T truth of all of life on what happens after you die? Would you seek for that like they sought out the answer to their questions? See, here's the thing. Scripture actually speaks and give, gives promises to those who, who seek after God. Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Psalm 14.2 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand. Understand wisdom. If there are any who seek after God. Do you seek for truth, like these wise men sought for the truth. Think about that. There was no guarantee. We get, we get the benefit of reading this in hindsight. We know that they eventually found the child. They had no guarantee that they would find the child. They had no guarantee other than what? The written word of God. And yet they went, and they sought, and they kept seeking month after month after month. They went with a caravan They brought gifts. Some of us, I believe, spend time seeking Jesus like oftentimes we as kids would spend time looking for things in our home. I don't know if you have children or if you are children or if you've ever been a child, but if your parent ever asked you, hey, go find this for me in the garage or go find this for me in your room, it's amazing to me. It's almost like kids go blind as soon as you ask them to go look for something. If you've ever sent your child, hey, can you go upstairs and just grab me this really quick? Grab my sweatshirt. It's on and you explain it, right? You turn, two, take two steps and then turn left and then take two steps and then it should be right there, right on the nightstand. It's a book, right? And you send them with very specific instructions and then they come back like not even five seconds later. Couldn't find it. It's like, what? Did you even look? Well, I got halfway up the stairs and my heart told me it's not there, so... Oh, my word, you know? But, but it, for those of you who are Christians, I think it, it should be slightly confronting for us to consider how far these men went to seek Jesus and how oftentimes it's difficult for us to even spend five minutes with him in the morning. They had to go mile after mile after mile, and some of us can't make it down to the nightstand or to the couch or to a place in our home, we can't even make it 20 feet to seek to spend time with Jesus. 
if you are somebody who is curious in seeking and looking for answers and looking for truth, Jesus promises that you will find him. You will find him. There's a podcast I was listening to not long ago. There was a guy named Adam Curry. He was an atheist. He was a conspiracy theorist. And I was like, I'm going to take this podcast with a grain of salt. Like, I'm not going to put a ton of stock in it. But he said, I've, I've come to prove a lot of these conspiracy theories either true or false. And that's been my whole livelihood, just hunting these resources down to figure out whether it's true or not. And he tells the podcaster, he says, you know, there was one conspiracy theory that it's like the biggest conspiracy theory in the world, and I couldn't ever figure it out. I, I never even thought to look at it, and it was God. And so the podcaster says, and? He says, as certain as I am, of all the conspiracies, and all of these theories that I've hunted down and proven false or proven to be true, of every single one of them, I can be certain of this, there is a God. He not only exists, but his son is Jesus, and he is the son of God and the savior of the world. The podcaster was like, what evidence do you have? And he goes, I have more evidence for the existence of Jesus than many, many other historians can present evidence of historical figures. When you seek truth, you will find Jesus. You will find him. How can we emulate these wise men, these magi? Be curious about creation. Wonder about God's world. And allow that wonder to lead you to the word of God, to seek the truth in the scriptures. Number three, keep seeking. Don't give up. Look with eyes that long to see the truth. Number four, worship like them. Worship like them. We're going to touch on the, most of this passage next week when we look at King Herod. But in verses 11, 10 and 11, we see, we see how they came to worship him. Look at verse 10. It says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. When we emulate the example of the wise men, we will not only allow the wonder of the world and the curiosity about creation to draw us into the Word and seeing special revelation in Christ Jesus. We will continue to seek like them and not give up we will doubt our doubts and we will also come to realize that Christ is the one who is intended to be worshipped. What's interesting is there are many commentators who will say that they came in order to show tribute or to pay respect or to show honor. And I'm like, that's not what the Bible says. It says here that they fell down and worshipped him. If this is not the king of all creation who they've been seeking after, this is a bizarre moment. You have a two-year-old that's receiving treasure and honor from the men of the East, the Magi, the kings who had come in order to pay tribute. They worshiped him. He did not reject them. He did not turn down their gifts because he knew who he was, the one to be worshiped. They fell down and they worshiped him. Notice, they have an attitude of joy and their hands are filled with gifts. And the challenge for us this morning is to think, whether or not we have attitudes of joy and whether or not we have hands that are filled with gifts. It says that they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. I think they were joyful. That's what probably when I'm not too keen on it, but it seems like they were happy about seeing Jesus. It says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Exceeding joy upon exceeding joy is what meets the hearts of those who long for a king and find him. If you're looking for the king of Christmas, his name is Jesus. He is the one who made you, who your heart was formed to worship. The kings from the east came to seek the king of the Jews. They found a babe, they found the child, and they worshiped him rightly for who he was. Not only the king of the Jews, but the king over all creation. Are our hearts filled with joy in this season? 
where we would look to the king who came. Do we have attitudes that are joyful? Think about this for a second. If your attitude was a benchmark for how others perceive what those who follow Christ should live like, would anybody show up on Christmas Eve if you invited them? In other words, if you don't have an attitude of gratitude, you'd probably hesitate inviting people to church. These kings emulate for us an example of what our hearts should feel when we come to Christ. Exceeding joy. They also emulate for us an example of how our hands should be filled with gifts. Gold, this was a kingly gift. This was truly a treasure that was meant for a king. And they come to this child and they give him a gift of gold. They gave it to him not because he needs it, but because they rightly recognized him as the one who was worthy of it. Last week, we talked a little bit about the worthiness of Christ as our treasure, but I want to drive this home again. I want us to understand as we give to the Lord, here's what we need to recognize. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't want your money, but he wants your heart. One way that we show God that he has our hearts is by giving him our gold. Are we generous to the Savior? Are we generous because he's worthy of it? You can't buy God's favor. Only Jesus could buy that for us. But you can show him honor because of what Jesus has done. Are you giving God your gold in worship? Incense. This was a fragrance. This was a fragrance that was offered up. And this speaks to the fragrant offering, first of all, of what Jesus was on our behalf. He was the only pleasing and acceptable gift to the Father. But secondly, it is a representation, even as that joy, of how we can give ourselves as those who are offerings. Do we offer our lives to Jesus? These men bowed down before him, they worshiped him, and incense here is a way for us to know that Christ is worthy of all of our lives. He doesn't only want our, he doesn't need our gold, he doesn't want our gold, he wants our hearts, he wants our lives, and so we give our lives to him as a fragrant offering. You ever think about how your attitude, again, impacts those around you? You ever have somebody tell you like, man, your attitude, it just stinks. There is a scent in odor that comes along with having a bad attitude. And yet here in this incense, we see an opportunity to have an attitude that reflects what our whole life should, a worthy offering to the king. Lastly, they gave myrrh. Myrrh is used a few times in the New Testament here, but also at the embalming of Christ. And here's what myrrh for us can actually represent. Not only myrrh that was given in order to worship and honor him, but myrrh that pointed forward to Jesus' sacrifice. I want to think about this for a second. Jesus was the only child who was ever born that was meant to die. Every child that is born, every child that is conceived is meant to live. Jesus was born in order that he might die. And this myrrh, this offering of myrrh, was not only a fragrant offering, but it pointed forward ultimately to his death. Recognizing that Christ has given his life for us is a way that we worship him. You, you come in to his presence recognizing that he is a sacrifice who has given himself for us. So Christian, when we, when we think about our own lives, we ask ourselves, we look at the Magi and we see their example of how they came and they bowed down before this child. And we're challenged about how we live our lives. Do we actually bow down before our king? Do we show him honor? Do we give of our gold, of our treasure, seeing him as the one who's worthy of it? Do our lives, our lives lived as an incense and fragrance? And do we recognize over and over again the sacrifice of Christ in our lives? These gifts represent all of those things in Christ. This kingly gift points forward to the work and the person of Jesus Christ. In his person, he is worth it. And in his work, he's to be adored. He died for us. So if we think about how, how this has kind of gone for the Magi, they started off by looking out into creation and being curious about it. And that led them to look for conclusions and to look for answers. 
It led them to look for the truth in the scriptures, in the word of God. And that led them to go on a journey until they discovered who the answer was for them in this king child. And rather than stating their own claim, they laid down and they worshiped him. This is how our hearts are called to worship, that we would wonder about the world, that we would be drawn into the word, that we would actually see the king and bow down and worship him. In these ways, these kings show us how their example is to be emulated. But there's also another way that Christ shows us how we can emulate his example in this passage. It's by welcoming them. I want us to notice that Jesus doesn't turn them away, that Mary doesn't get upset. These were non-Jews who were coming from a foreign land and paying honor and showing respect to her child. But I want us to think about this biblical pattern, and I want to confront some of how our heritage here in America can often get in times with the way of our spiritual heritage as Christians. Some of you, this is going to be very uncomfortable. Good. For some of you, this is going to be very encouraging. Good. These were non-Jews. They were foreigners. They were strangers. They were aliens in the land. Some of us, may be uncomfortable as Americans with the implications of Christ welcoming them. But the Bible talks about aliens and strangers throughout the Old Testament and our ability to welcome those who are different from us or who are unlike us is actually a measurement of our righteousness. All throughout the Old Testament, cities who were lacking in hospitality, specifically for the stranger, the alien among them, the sojourner in their land, it was a knock against their own righteousness because they did not have a heart for the nations. We have those who are representatives from nations far off who were prophesied about from Isaiah talking about coming to worship Jesus. Jesus does not reject them. The book of Matthew was written specifically to the Jew but it has an eye of including those who are not God's people as God's people, which is why the book of Matthew ends with this radical call to make disciples. And Jesus says, go into all nations, not the, just the nations that are like us or that we like. Go into all nations. And so as believers in Jesus, our allegiance belongs primarily and specifically to being those who are Christians that we would welcome those who are unlike us, who are strangers and foreigners and aliens among us. If your national heritage is more important than your spiritual heritage, if the earthly kingdom is more important than the eternal kingdom, you have gravely misunderstood the righteousness of Christ that has been applied to your life. I'm not talking about proper enforcement of laws. I'm talking about a heart orientation that is like Christ here that looks to those who were far off and called them friends. The reason why this is so important for us to get as, as, as believers in Jesus and as Christians is this. That whole entire theme and motif of the Old Testament that talks about the foreigners, the aliens, strangers, sojourners, all throughout the Old Testament, it heightens to the point where in the New Testament, it says that those who believe in Christ were aliens and strangers and far off. That's you. That's me. So if we have a problem with those who are unlike us, then what we're saying is we really don't get the gospel. We just don't get it. There is a kingdom culture that supersedes every culture. And because of that, our hearts can be open to receiving those who don't think like us, those who don't act like us, those who don't dress like us from a culture that is completely unlike ours. But here's the joy that I have of being able to present this this morning. I know that that falls on, on completely open and willing hearts here in this body. I know that you're right alongside me in being willing to seek those who are among us, who are not like us, to pursue those you want to know why I know that? Because your pastor's name is Keone. And that's me. So here's what I know about grace. 
Grace is a church that longs to see Christ exalted in every home and in every heart in West Michigan and beyond. When we look to the example of the Magi, we see those who are curious about creation, who, who have a general wonder about the world and where it came from, where they came from, who have a longing to know the answers, the big answers to the big questions of life. And it led them to seek the scriptures and to continue to seek until they found the king who was a child with his mother. And what did they do? They worshiped him. There was another podcast I was listening to. There was a man named Stephen Meyer who again had the same exact experience. He says, I didn't have a Damascus Road experience. He said it was like the opposite. But at 14 years old, he began to wonder if there's significance to anything in this life at all. What does it matter He found himself at 14 wondering, I broke my leg, but what does it matter if I broke my leg? What does it matter if I died? What does it matter if I get good grades or bad grades? What does it matter if I make a great living in life or not? What does it matter if I get married and have children? What does any of it matter? Because in the grand scheme of of a world that cares nothing about me, what does it matter? That curiosity led him to become a leading physicist. And while he was in college and he began to study, he found himself over and over, like Dr. Seigart, challenging many of the theories that were being pushed upon him and recognizing that they did not have the answers he was seeking. He said that the science could tell him a lot of the how, but none of the why. And because of his curiosity, it led him to a place where he recognized that there is a God. He said he was fortunate to have friends around him who guided him in his seeking and in his challenge to find answers, and he ended up finding Christ. Friend, if you're here this morning and you have found Christ, then the challenge for you is to ask yourself whether or not you're worshiping like him and welcoming to others. If you're here this morning and you're on the fence or you've doubted, the challenge for you and the encouragement is to doubt your doubts, to look to the Magi as an example for you to continue to seek Because in seeking, I believe, you will find Jesus. If you're serving communion this morning, I'm going to invite you to come up. And I'm going to ask that we close in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning. We're thankful, Lord, that you didn't simply leave us unguided in this life. But that you yourself entered into your creation in order to be the answer for the problems that we have created. Lord, we thank you that in wondering about your world, you've given us your word that guides us into all truth. And I pray, Lord, for our body here this morning that we would emulate the worship, Lord, of those who came and found you. That we too would give of our gold, that we would give of our our lives, Lord, that we would offer ourselves as those fragrant offerings, that we would remember your sacrifice. And Lord, I pray for those who are genuinely curious about creation and about the beginning of the world and how things began and how you have created them. Lord, I pray that you would lead them into all truth. Jesus, we want you to be exalted among us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would move in a mighty way through our church, that we would be bold in proclaiming the truth of the gospel. We pray this all in your mighty name. Amen.